Today, I'm really excited to be chatting to Paul Bregan from Extinction Rebellion Northern Ireland on the urgency of climate change and the organisation's history of civil disobedience. Also on today's show will be Linda Sullivan from Friends of the Earth, who will be talking to us about extractivism and the need for a more sustainable economic and social model. Finally, we will end the episode with some recent good news from the world of climate action, brought to you by Emma Smith. So our first guest today is Paul Brogan with Extinction Rebellion Northern Ireland. Uh, welcome to the EcoScoop, Paul. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, how you got involved with climate activism and eventually how you got involved with Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, um, I've always had a care for the environment since I was in school. I think, uh, you know, in primary school in the early 90s, it was, you know, climate change, uh, global warming was a big deal, destruction of the rainforest. So it's always been something I really cared about. And I kind of tailored more of my career towards trying to address these sorts of problems. I mean, I had an equal passion for physics. So I think, you know, I could usually understand the uh, the importance of the science and so on. Um, but I never actually got too involved in activism. I don't, I find it a bit a bit scary, you know, and from a like, you know, the, the typical physicist doesn't tend to want to gather too much in groups and then start demanding things. You feel a bit stupid. Um, and then, but when I saw Extinction Rebellion's protests in London, that actually did wake me up a little bit. You know, I, I saw them on television and I was like, yep, this actually might work because everything so far hasn't worked. And then some friends of mine, it's like, well, I didn't know they were they were the ones setting it up, but they set up a little group in, in Belfast. And then I'd be a bit of a yes man. So I just turned up for one. They said, would you like to do this? I said, yes. And then the ball just got rolling. And then I was just, yeah, I was, I was quite involved really for... For a year and then um yeah no that's brilliant i think um like you said you mentioned the 2009 protests and i think that brought extinction rebellion to everyone's attention really it really gained a lot of momentum and traction for the organization itself um i think extinction rebellion in many ways is very different to the sort of climate activism organizations that people were used to sort of hearing about and seeing in the public domain um Obviously, when I spoke to you earlier on in the week, you mentioned that it's a decentralized organization. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about that and how it sort of works as a national organization and how the Northern Ireland group that you're a part of feeds into the national group? Well, I will, uh, but I'd, I'd sort of push back slightly on the idea that environmentalism doesn't tend to be direct action orientated. So Greenpeace, you know, at their kind of high watermark would have been out, you know, almost getting themselves sunk as they try to protect whales, you know, like literally putting themselves between whales and whaling ships. Um, historically, say with you know the anti-fracking campaign that um, happened in Northern Ireland, you know there were people you know chained to bulldozers. So that actually has always been an aspect of uh, environmentalism, but it's kind of downplayed. I think this is sort of how uh, things tend to work out. Let's say like you know the civil rights in America, it's sort of downplayed. It's like oh no, it's naturally going to happen. You know people did these these big grand things. You know like huge marches which were illegal and getting beaten up by the cops, but we were just getting round to civil rights. And I think that's what happens with so many of these pressure groups. I mean, feminism as well. It's like, oh, women would have just got the rights, you know, just it was a natural trajectory. But, you know, some difficult women kind of forced the issue. But, you know, so this is sort of how I think direct action gets minimized and then written out of 
in a public consciousness, to be honest. Um, but yeah, sorry, how are we organized as far as like within Northern Ireland? Um, so really the way Extinction Rebellion, like they realize the need to be able to grow in this exponential manner, which we all know about, you know, post COVID. So it needs to be that, you know, one person can sort of train three to five people, can train three to five people. And that's the only way that we can get to a large enough size. So really what the first thing that Extinction Rebellion provide you with is kind of like a manual for how to do activism. So, you know, you've got your three demands, you get your 10 principles, and these are basically, can we all, so the three demands is kind of an outward facing thing. So if someone comes up to you and says, what are you about? You've got three lines. You don't start dithering. You don't start kind of going off on long explanations like I tend to do. It's like, tell the truth, act now, citizens assemblies, right? So tell the truth about climate change and, you know, where we're going. Um, act now, don't leave it another five or 10 or 30 years because it's urgent. And the way to make these decisions we want to do is use citizens assemblies because they tend to work, you know, and that's, we see them working around the world. Um, some people have a problem with citizens assemblies. They can't be manipulated, but anyway, so that's, it's like, do you subscribe to that? Yes. Then you can then start to think about yourself being, are you a member of Extinction Rebellion? And then it's like 10 principles. And some of them are quite challenging. Like um, we avoid blaming and shaming. So it's so much of a, a tendency in ourselves to like blame the person who doesn't recycle or has a four wheel drive or Jeff Bezos or, you know, um, the Exxon Shell, you know, this idea, it's, it's a toxic system. You know, so some of these are counterintuitive, but it just really helps us work together. It helps us avoid um, just common traps. And then the sort of central area, say around London, which has, you know, thousands of members and we have, you know, much less. <laughs> Always recruiting though, um, is that they can then provide, you know, art materials, they can provide training, um, and then, you know, further, yeah, like just documents on how to be an activist and even just shared ideas. So that's the... Uh, written out part of it and then the next thing as well is you can be part of groups and circles so you can share ideas you can inform actions and so on no that's brilliant and um it's actually like really interesting one of the ways that i kind of got um became more familiar with extinction rebellions i actually read one of the materials you're talking about i presume is um a common guide sense for the 21st century which okay. kind of talked about a lot of the principles that you just talked about and i found it really interesting because it showed a side of extinction rebellion that i think people who are aware of it because of media coverage might not be as familiar with which kind of brings me on to my next point which is that Extinction Rebellion is very much known for its civil disobedience element, um, primarily because, again, those 2019 um, protests in London kind of gave it that reputation as far as even being placed on extreme ideologists, terrorist watch lists, etc. Absolutely. Um, no, like four, four people on a train get more attention than 20,000 people sitting in streets. Yeah. But 20,000 people sitting in streets gets more attention than one million people marching past Parliament. Yeah. It's a really sick and unfortunate, you know, system that we work in that you know, that people have to, well, one that the worst will always be sort of pushed as, as the representative of the many. And then also it's that, it, you know, it takes this level of extreme stuff to say, you know, we don't want our, our kids to be going hungry. You know, we are stealing from the future generations, you know, these sorts of ideas, you know, anyway, sorry. <laughs> so. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, I think I was just going to ask really the civil disobedience um, aspect of it, I think has probably clouded a lot of the judgment and allowed a lot of the discourse surrounding Extinction Rebellion and its aims and its goals and how it goes about sort of achieving those. Um, is it difficult to kind of manage that public perception and to be part of an organization that's to to an extent um, has a slightly negative public perception? 
It's it's interesting. I mean, um, it comes in a you get used to having the same conversation multiple times. I think most politicians probably have this experience, and most campaigners, you know, like let's just say you're a vegan campaigner. It's then like you know somebody either might walk up to you with genuine interest, you know, you know why are you vegan or why should I be vegan or with you know outright hostility. So it's kind of the same kind of things come up time and again. So you know you kind of get used to having the same conversations and then learn how to shorten um, conversations. But yeah, I mean, am I that uh, like as far as being involved with like some of the the sides of Extinction Rebellion which are less desirable, you know, and media presenting wise, uh, like, you know, particularly like the tube strikes. I mean, wasn't really supported internally. <laughs> you know, it was a bad idea. In the light of BLM, it's like you know the fact that they chose stations which were just very you know it was very you know it was, there were not many white people in that crowd. Put it that way. Apart from the guy standing on the the train, bad idea. Um, so it wasn't a well thought out, well executed action, but these things will happen. And to be honest, like it's once again, it's in retrospect, you know, the, at the time in America, like, well, take Black Lives Matter. It in many regards has been put across as a terrorist organization. And actually it's only ticked over into more acceptance in the last few years, particularly at the very start, all of that pressure was, you know, trying to paint them as a terrorist organization. You go back into history, say, you know, the anti-slavery and once again, you know, suffragettes and so on. There tend to be at the time villainized and then after the time kind of then lionized. Um, and that's just normal. People don't want to change their habits, even if the habit change is for the best. And this goes for people like, you know, and, and individual change, by the way, very low on my priority list. But habits of business, business don't want to invest in um, environmental saving because they don't invest in environmental saving even though the payback like their payback for environmental saving is two years you know they'll only make a two-year investment but once they go to five years and once five years passed they're making money it's just a change of habits so be free to pull me back onto threads of conversation by the way <laughs> no that's fine i find what you're saying all very interesting because i think one of the things that we're quite used to sort of having thrown at us when we look at climate action is sort of highlighting individual actions and how we can all make a change. And whilst I think that that's all very well and good, I think like you just said that there is a big element of it that needs to be institutional change and corporate change and businesses sort of needing to take the lead on that. So I, th I think what you're saying is a, is a very valid point. Um, I just think going back to the sort of civil disobedience, because yeah. obviously you've shared your point of view on the 2009 um, protests themselves, but would you then say that civil disobedience, some people would argue, is the cornerstone of Extinction Rebellion? Would you argue that that's potentially not mm. the case? Oh, absolutely. So the like the, the surface of Extinction Rebellion that most people see is definitely the civil disobedience because um, local news, we're, we're playing to the system we are, we are in. You don't get to choose the game you're playing. You know, you have to play by the rules. And the rules are, especially in the first one, the only thing the media report is arrests. So if people turn up and they don't get arrested, the media don't report it. If you block roads and cause disruption, they'll report it. And now this can seem very uh, like vain or narcissistic to go like, look at me, look at me. You know, it's an attention economy we live in, you know, um, but we feel this is important enough. We feel that, you know, the ongoing mass extinction of animals is important enough to scream about and try and get Brexit off the news for, you know, just, just I mean, just a little bit. Like if we had 1% of the coverage of Brexit, and like 1%, if climate change was given that sort of level of seriousness, and not just, you know, oh, look, this iceberg's breaking up, the real science, the real, like, these are the trajectories we're on, 
these are the outcomes, these are the consequences. What does a five degree C world look at look like in 2100? There's people being born now, they'll be 80 at, in, a, in a world which is probably going to be three to five degrees warmer. That doesn't sound too much in terms of your house going from like 20 degrees to 25 degrees. But in terms of the earth, that's utterly destructive, you know? Yeah. So we're not talking about these big things. But one of the things that drives us into the public eye is um, uh, is that there's a direct action. But to get somebody on the streets, you need to do a lot of work, right? Yeah. For one person to be on a on the street, you need um, to put probably about twenty hours minimum of training into them. You know, so that person has to turn up at a talk. They have to hear kind of about the science and so on. They have to network with people. We have to talk about, you know, this regenerative culture, which is one of the most important aspects of Extinction Rebellion, you know. Um, and then, you know, you have to organize them and get them there. And you always have a welfare officer with them. You have your social media side of things. You know, you've got all of these things to do. And that's like, you know, to get one person in a direct action, it takes 10 people behind them, you know, but the media is only looking at one person. Um, and you know that's that's a problem in our society. I think more generally, we just look at the big action. We don't talk about all the logistics to get there. Um, but yeah, so that's why we. But for me, anyway, that's extinction rebellion. It's going out, you know, contacting organisations, talking to people one on one, seeing what ideas come up out of the crowd. Then within the group, learning to select the good ideas, learning to work together in a non-coercive way, and then eventually to deliver an action. Um, you know, that is what we're looking for. And it's very much not the top-down command control that you would have in, say, a business or even in, like, you know, a lot of social, like, um, a lot of socialists will often have this you know, top-down hierarchical um, mechanism, whereas we really try to create this, like, hol um, holacracy, kind of a level playing field where people can move around between roles. Like, that, for me, is extinction rebellion. But you only see it from the inside, very different from the inside. <laughs> No, absolutely. And I think most organisations would be like that. And it certainly makes a lot of sense from a climate action perspective that you would sort of not necessarily from the top down, but, you know, that people from within a community would collaborate to kind of come up with solutions that suit that community. I think that's really important. And it's definitely a theme that I've seen pop up throughout all the interviews I've done since I've started the podcast. Um, yeah. I suppose kind of hand in hand with the civil disobedience, but maybe not on the same vein. Um, there's also kind of a perception that um, the communication style of Extinction Rebellion, and by no means just Extinction Rebellion, other um, sort of climate action groups, is sort of very gloom and doom, that there's sort of a very mm -hmm. negative aspect to it. Um, how, how would you respond to that sort of criticism? So, I, I mean, I would have bought into this, and this definitely is the received wisdom, is that we can't be too negative about climate change, because otherwise people will turn off, right? I think, you know, and I work, I mean, I work in... Um, renewable energy integration and all this sort of stuff. Um, now, and I would have accepted that as accepted wisdom, but at the same time, I'm like finding a problem with that now that it hasn't worked, right? Objectively, it hasn't worked. It's been 30 years talking about like, here's all the positive solutions. You know, it's like, here's, you know, it's, yeah, right. So we've been talking all these solutions to these problems and focusing on the solutions and not implementing the solutions and then planning to implement the solutions and not. Um, and after 30 years, we have gone very far backwards. In the last 30 years, we've doubled our contribution of CO2 to the atmosphere, which means we've made the problem twice as bad as it was in the 90s, arguably a lot more than twice as bad because of, you know, runaway stuff. But the, um, so we, I think we spend too much time focusing on solutions, not enough time focusing on the problem. So if you come across a problem, uh, and especially from my, my engineering head, 
it's really good to sit with a problem, to really go over the problem, to look at the, you know, the outcomes from it. And then don't be too quick to like, you know, jump away, you know, to distract yourself with a solution. What about this solution? What about that solution? Stay with the problem. And I think Extinction Rebellion really did sort of wake me up to that. And also, I honestly did not know. I had not looked at the projections properly. I hadn't read the IPCC report properly. I care about these things. I'm numerically and scientifically literate. I can understand them. And I hadn't taken the time. I was ashamed of myself, like that I was down on a, at a protest with a printout of the, the summary of the IPCC report. And I hadn't read it. And I was reading it. We got to page five. And I'm like, these guys are not exaggerating, you know? Yeah, I suppose the takeaway lesson from that then is that, you know, um, we need to stop looking at it as doom and gloom communication style and perhaps it's just an accurate reflection of what the situation is and that, you know, yeah. we do really need to be listening to these narratives and these communications that, that you know, organisations like Extinction Rebellion are being, are putting out there and taking the issue slightly more seriously than it has been taken to date. Um, no, but I think, I think humans respond to an emergency, that's the thing. I think, you know, we rationally think that humans are rational. And that if we tell them about these little incremental things, they'll rationally make the right rational choices. But we're not rational. I mean, you talk to any um, marketing company, they're not using rationality to sell stuff. They're using emotion, right? You know, humans run to a response when they hear things like fire, right? You know, you don't fix, the, you don't fix your roof until it's starting to leak. Yeah. This is, I think that is the psychology of humans. I think the marketing people know this. And I think the people who have tried to dither and deny climate change know this. And I would not be, I don't like indulging in conspiracy thinking, but personal change was a marketing ploy by BP to basically stop climate, like, you know, climate action from happening. And I would not be surprised if that is the idea that not crying wolf was a, uh, maybe that's the wrong analogy here, but you know what I mean? But crying fire is not the right way to deal with stuff. It's a good way of delaying stuff. Anyway, sorry, that's another bugbear of mine. <laughs> um, I suppose my next question for you was, and sort of having talked about what we've talked about so far, um, from your perspective, and maybe Extinction Rebellion as a broader organisation, what would be the key change that you guys would be looking to sort of see happen in the short term, say in the next five years? So the demand in 20, yeah, 2018, 2019 was carbon neutral UK uh, by 2025. Now, in the Republic of Ireland, their demand was 2030, because they actually had a citizens' assembly, I think it's 2016 or 2017, on this. And just to say, if citizens' assembly sound crazy, it's that's how the Republic of Ireland um, kind of came up with their abortion and marriage equality things. Nobody thought Ireland would go so into marriage equality to be the first country to actually implement marriage equality, mm. but they and it was off the back of um, citizens' assembly. So there's this assembly um, recommended 2030, and our third demand is beside things by citizens' assembly, and so that's what they're going for. But you know, you look at the IPCC report, like you know, you're saying globally we need to be net zero by between 2040 and 2055. Historically, the IPCC reports have always been the low end. You know, they, like what we actually see as far as the trajectory is always at their upper worst case scenario. So if we aim for 2040, maybe we're okay for carbon neutral as a species. Maybe we can make it out of the 21st century. Right. If we leave it 2070, we're probably a bit more screwed, right? And that's sort of the science. And that's what we're supposed to our scientifically led government, evidence led government is supposed to be working towards. So if you think that the world is going to be carbon neutral by 2040, when do you think Western countries should be carbon neutral by? Yeah. Because Theresa May and so almost in 2050. 
And I suppose the thing that we keep saying with, um, keep seeing rather with government deadlines as well is that they're always sort of five years down the line and there's never quite that urgency that perhaps is needed because I think people sometimes look at these slightly longer term um, deadlines like 2040 and they think, oh, that's ages away. But in reality, for the scale of the work that needs to be undertaken for that to happen, it's probably not that much of a long time to actually work with. Um, finally, before... Yeah, oh, no. sorry, I know I'm dragging down, but I think we're seeing an interesting thing with Joe Biden at the minute, right? So Joe yeah. Biden has come in and passed a whole swathe of policies, which he'd pre-prepared, had them all lined up, he had experts. That is how you see a politician respond with urgency to a problem. Mm. We are yeah. not seeing that with climate change. It's always kicked down to the next year and uses a voting platform and stuff. Yeah, no, definitely. I agree with you on that one. And it's, it is really encouraging to see Biden come on and kind of reverse all that tragic tragic decisions made by Donald Trump in the last four years. It is definitely really encouraging. But before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you if you could briefly tell us sort of what ongoing initiatives that Extinction Rebellion Northern Ireland specifically is working on and how our listeners can get involved if they, if they want to. Yeah, um, I think I mean, we've got a couple of things in the, in the works. Obviously, um, you know, COVID and lockdown and so on have kind of disrupted things. Yeah with disruption is one of the things that we also advocate um but one of the things i think is really important is community outreach community integration uh we're available you know for talks and training you know and right now it's mostly going to be you know digital um and people from lots of different backgrounds and i think really the, the our target um will be or should be uh the faith groups because um it should you know climate change is a moral issue in my opinion, moral and ethical issue. And I'd be interested, like the Quakers have been very good in these policies throughout the years. Um, and it'd be really interesting to, you know, engage with other groups and even just for mutual interest and so on, because some of the, the overtones of like, you know, it was actually Sammy Wilson said that uh, environmentalism is a pseudo religion, but in some ways he's kind of like, he was being a, he was being a dick, like, but um, it, in some ways he's right, because it, it does provide similar community. And also there's a bit of similar apocalyptic outcomes at this point in our trajectory as a species yeah. no definitely you can when you look at it from that perspective you can see there's a bit of crossover there no i'm i'm afraid we've run out of time paul but thank you very much for coming on i'm sure our listeners um will have enjoyed this segment hugely um and yeah thank you very much and hopefully have you back on the podcast soon oh, looking forward to it thanks very much podcast we have with us Linda Sullivan from Friends of the Earth. Welcome to the EcoScoop Linda. Uh, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, how you became involved with climate activism and eventually Friends of the Earth. Yeah okay yeah thanks for thanks for having me on. Um, so I suppose yeah, I'll just take you back a bit to my background and what I was doing before Friends of the Earth. Um, so I well I, I studied and my master's, well, my, my undergraduate degree was psychology. And then my master's was development studies. Um, and I suppose at that time, I had the idea of like an in the work for you know, like a large humanitarian NGO. Um, but while studying development studies, I quickly realized that how I disagreed with the concept of development, like how like Western centric it was. And um, yeah, just how that um, theory that of developing and developed nations 
and how there's like this linear progression um, and how we're where everyone else should be, <laughs> you know, it's just so contrary to, um, yeah, to, I suppose, the values that I had and I suppose the world that I, I thought that we, you know, I wanted to see, you know, so um, I then left that idea and um, focused on human rights. So I got involved in uh, some human rights organizations. I did an internship for Amnesty for a while. And then I got a job at the Human Rights Consortium here in Belfast. And I worked with them for a couple of years. Um, and well, it was actually when I was with Amnesty, we had a visit um, from a few women from Guatemala who came and told us their story of how mining had basically destroyed their lives, um, you know, destroyed their land and contaminated their water. Um, a couple of um, their husbands were murdered for being community leaders and resisting the mine. Um, and I suppose it was just their personal story. And like, what, while with Amnesty, you would hear many personal stories of injustice and persecution, but for some reason that one um, deeply affected me um, more for some reason. So then I followed their story in the years that, fought, that came after. And then finally I was in a position to um, go over to Latin America and um, I just wanted to see firsthand really um, what was going on and offer my support in any way. So um, I started off, the plan was to travel through Latin America, visiting different communities along the way um, who were also resisting um, mining and other forms of extractivism. Um, and, but then when I was passing through Peru, I came across um, a community um, who were resisting mining in the Cajamarca region in the Northern Highlands. And they just lost five members of their community um, through state violence and the suppression of protests against the mine. Um, so I decided to stay there a bit longer and do a bit of like reporting on what was going on and um, just try to uh, accompany them in, in whatever way I could. And I ended up staying there five years. <laughs> um, and yeah, I just, I suppose I fell in love with the people in the place and saw, saw a role for myself. So I spent those five years um, being involved in, in the local campaign, but then also writing what was going on um, in English and various different, because the company um, who wanted to mine was from North America and not much information was getting out in English. So yeah, I, I wrote blogs and articles, made connections with um, other human rights organizations, mostly based in the States, you know. Um, and yeah, and, and while I was there, I uh, linked up with Friends of the Earth back home um, and other activists um, who were supporting communities in the Spire Mountains uh, because there was also a mining struggle emerging there. Um, it was kind of funny, I had to go to Peru to connect to back home. <laughs> um, so uh, like that, those solidarity links were, were made then. And whenever I did eventually come home then, 2017, I got involved with Friends of the Earth just on a voluntary basis to support their campaign against extractivism. 
um, and to continue the connection with the communities in the Sparrens. Um, and then, <clears throat> yeah, then I started working for them and I'm now their act activism and community campaigns officer. Brilliant. It's really interesting to hear your experience, especially um, some of the specific experiences that you've had, because I think often we don't hear about sort of the more human side of the impacts of climate change and um, how that impacts actual people. So, so thank you for sharing that with us. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about extractivism in specific, what, what it actually means and why it's a real problem for those listeners out there who might not be familiar with it? Yeah, so um, there's a really good report by Warren Lant, who are based in London, and the report's called The Justice Transition is a Post-Extractive Transition. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so they, they have a definition of it that I think sums it up very well. Basically says that um, extractivism is a high intensity export oriented extraction of common ecological goods rooted in colonialism and the notion that humans are separate from and superior to the rest of the living world. So it's basically um, extracting what some would call natural resources um, for the global markets. Um, and I suppose it's like, it's the legacy of colonialism, basically, um, mostly in the direction of the global north extracting from the global south, but ever increasingly um, also sacrifice zones being created in rural communities in the global north too. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good definition. Um, so from kind of my own research on extractivism, I, I saw that obviously re relies a lot on a, a certain alignment of interests, corporate interests, um, and um, social trends around consumption that kind of drive this continued trends towards extractivism. Um, do you think that it's sort of, there is a direct link between those things and between sort of the economic systems that we currently see in operation and, you know, trends towards continuous developmental growth, et cetera? Yes, of course, yeah, it's, um, it stems from that really, um, like extractivism is tied up in the current dominant ecological model, um, like capitalism basically, you know, and if like capitalism is uh, like gets its fuel from the exploitation of people and nature. Um, so, so yeah, um, consumption is how we prop it up. Um, and this like overconsumption and um, yeah, just buying into that um, system that relies on constant growth, yeah. um, constant expansion, um, constant like increase in GDP um, on a finite planet, which is just um, ludicrous and has brought us the both the climate and ecological um, emergencies that we're in. Yeah. So um, broadly speaking, how would we transition? I know it's obviously a very complicated issue, issue, but broadly speaking, could you sort of talk about the implications globally and for local um, sort of communities of transitioning away from an economic model that's based on extractivism? Yeah, so like it's a very <laughs> big 
um, topic. So I'll just touch on some yeah. of the ideas and, and there are um, there are other sources that you can delve deeper in, into all the different um, aspects of how we can transition um, to like a life sustaining society as opposed to like a um, an industrial growth one. Um, I suppose, first of all, just looking at what we actually need as a society um, to, to meet our basic human rights, but also um, to be happy, <laughs> you know, like um, it's shown that the increase in material wealth doesn't align to increase in happiness, obviously up to a point where your needs are met, but beyond that, um, there's no correlation, you know, so just looking at the society and uh, what actually does make us happy, you know, and it, it's just like community um, togetherness, like um, eating well, being healthy, uh, looking after each other, you know, so um, I suppose reassessing what we actually need and then um, looking to see how, how that can be produced, like in a way that is sustainable. Um, so like, you know, the likes of no planned obsolescence, like things are made now to break in a couple of years um, or just to stop working, you know, or um, if they break, the whole thing has to be thrown out as opposed to just fixing a part of it. Um, so changing the way um, things are produced um, and if possible, like, um, production is as local as possible. Um, so like food is one um, example, you know, like we we have gotten used to eating everything from everywhere all year round, yeah. you know, um, and the amount of resources and the amount of uh, extractivism, like, you know, of uh, likes of oil and, and gas and, um, and metals and minerals to, to ensure that these, like, the food system is propped up um, and uh, other kind of consumption patterns, you know. Um, so, yeah, and then I suppose when we do also then consume uh, sensibly and responsibly, and then after that, uh, what happens to what we consume? You know, like, is it being reused? Is it being upcycled? It, is it being recycled then, you know? And so that is the basis of a circular economy yeah. um, as opposed to a linear one. And then, and also the, the whole recycling that it's not just like within the global north, that it's actually uh, recycled back to the global south because of the history of our overconsumption and, and what we, like the resources that we extract turned in the products that are consumed in the global north so um for a just transition that re uh, there needs to be a redistribution of what is recycled you know um yeah so there's other kind of concepts i think like the whole thing is like we need to um change the way we view um nature basically um and one of the things that that helps helps me and helps I suppose our network in Friends of the Earth do that is is looking at nature as um, as having rights in and of um, herself, you know. So um, the concept of rights of nature is actually gaining strength across the world. Um, like it's 
in Ecuador and Colombia, um, New Zealand, India, Bangladesh, so there's, there's in the United States actually. So the concept of the rights of nature, uh, where we change how we view nature, um, that it's just um, like an object, a dead object to be consumed, that it's actually a living thing and deserves rights as humans do. And also the interconnection with human rights, because we can't, um, we, our rights aren't guaranteed if um, the destruction of our environment continues as, as it is, you know. Um, like we have a right to a healthy environment, but that's tied into um, the rights of nature, really. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, a, it's, it's certainly like a really complicated issue because like you pointed out, it's it affects so many areas of our individual life and our community lives. And, you know, it's not only a local issue, it's a global issue. And I thought it was really interesting that you were talking about food production, for example, needing to be more local. And that's one of sort of the vulnerabilities that say the pandemic exposed very early on that how we are so interconnected to the rest of the world and we no longer rely on our local resources as much as we should and could um so that was really interesting it was mentioned um a circular economy as being an alternative to the current economic models um and that is something that Derry city council has tried to implement um what are sort of the key differences in the circular economy compared to the current economic models that sort of us as individuals could see and kind of contribute towards? Yeah, so it's really inspiring what's happening in Derry. You know, it is, yeah, like the first city um, on these islands to, to go zero waste um, and to adopt like a, a circular economy. So um, I suppose it, like the practice still needs to be worked out um, like so it can't be just a declaration um, without action um, but it works on like all levels so right down to the community and encouraging like um, it, like individuals and households to be responsible with their waste and, and to consume less and, and all that we talked about before but um, also at a council level that um, how they how they operate also minimizes waste and um, and deals with waste in the most uh, economically sustainable way you know and it's it's very poignant actually because the largest illegal um, dump is just outside the city of Derry um, the largest in Europe sorry um, and that's like basically decades of, of illegal uh, toxic dumping um, and that continues to contaminate the, you know the land and water around it um, so for dairy to move away from that uh, and to like a, a more sustainable way of working is um, yeah it's inspiring actually and it would be great if other council areas um, and central government would um, assume the same or, or be as ambitious what would you say is sort of stopping other councils or central governments from making that move towards a similar model? I suppose there's lack of political will and, and um, not prioritising it. Mm. Um, and yeah, also hopefully by seeing the example of others, um, it's easier for them to do it. So now that Derry's um, leading the way, hopefully they will be more encouraged. 
to do it you know to follow their example no definitely it is really encouraging to sort of see government organizations like Derry City Council kind of paving the way and you know being bold enough to kind of be yes we're the first but we're going to do it anyways and kind of pave the way hopefully for, for future organizations to do the same um can I just um, sorry Flavia okay. can I just jump in um a big factor in that was um the um activism of a particular group of of really great people from zero waste northwest and like they're um like they were behind this the whole way um and actually showing the council uh, how it can be done um so i think like grassroots activism is at the heart of this achievement no that's brilliant that's really good to see that you know grassroots activism can really make a change and it's really encouraging and hopefully it will encourage more people to get involved in grassroots activism in their own communities as well um finally before we run out of time do you want to just briefly tell us about any projects that friends of the earth are working on at the moment um and also just how our listeners can get involved if they want to yeah sure yeah so um well we continue to support communities that are um resisting extractivism like in terms of mining uh fracking uh, oil and gas extraction and quarrying and um, some notable um communities that we're supporting are um the communities in greencastle uh, that are uh, resisting the uh, mega gold mining project from Daradian. So like um, you can look on their Facebook and Twitter pages like Save Our Sparrows, Greencastle People's Office. Um, yeah, you can also look on Friends of the Earth social media. Um, like, so I mentioned the rights of nature and the rights of communities. That's a big thing that we um, wanna be working on going forward. We're also um, supporting like community climate action so uh, groups like, like Muscle, who's a, um, a Belfast-based grassroots climate uh, grouping, um, like View Strikers, Extinction Rebellion, like so all these great activist groups. Um, we try to um, just offer our accompaniment and support wherever possible. Um, and yeah, and I also uh, wanted to raise a couple of things that I think are also part of the solution, um, such as like the creation of, of local democratic um, economies. Uh, and there's an organization, Trademark Belfast, who are working on um, community wealth building. Um, and this is, I think, an essential part of taking our power back from uh, the corporations. Um, so yeah, and also I think part of the solution as well is reclaiming the commons. So like the commons being like our common land, our water and our air, but also the commons being like healthcare, education. Um, so like in a way looking to um, create like a really resilient, um, self-sufficient, like network of communities, but also a state that's fairly supportive of um, a, like a well-being economy as opposed to an extractive economy. So, and I just wanted also to highlight, um, if you wanted to find out more about extractivism, there's two great podcasts. Um, like there's there's one by ABC Green Politics, E for Extractivism, where some great women talk about uh, what is extractivism and um, how we can resist it. And also there's a podcast by Trademark Belfast 
entitled David and Goliath, where community members from the Sperns and Loch Ness, Loch Ness is another site of extractivism and sand dredging. Um, yeah, so that podcast is just like the highlight. And finally, um, there's a really great book called um, Less is More by Jason Hickel. Um, and that really underlines like um, the problem of a, of a growth. Uh, industrial growth model and how we can move to like post-growth um, and um, yeah uh, more like as Warren Mann called it like a justice transition. No that's brilliant there's some really good tips for our listeners to kind of get involved with and also do some more research and find out more about the issue because um, personally myself I hadn't really heard about extractivism um, until about two weeks ago so it was really interesting to speak to you and find out a bit more about it um, and like you said highlighting that a just transition is needed so thank you very much for taking the time to come on our podcast it's been a pleasure to speak with you. My pleasure thank you Damia. Hi I'm Emer, and I'm here this week on the podcast to give some positive eco news. So there have been a few big developments over the last few weeks. First of all, um, the election of American President Joe Biden. As we all know, Trump may not have been the best for the environment, but it seems Biden has taken a complete U-turn on most of Trump's actions, starting with his first day in office rejoining the Paris Agreement. While I don't think the process will be fully finalised until mid-February or so, it is a giant step in the right direction. Rejoining means a more concrete set of commitments and goals towards climate and carbon neutrality, and may of course concrete the goals of countries who are a little unsure as to where to look for environmental leadership over the past few years. Following on from the Paris Agreement, another example of Biden's good deeds is his plan to take out the plans for the Keystone XL pipeline, a pipeline that would run from Canada um, to oil refineries on the US's Gulf of Mexico coast. While there will still be a dependence on imports of oil, it is a step away from the polluting fossil fuels and will also protect countless areas of land from pipe building and piping across the US. More locally in Belfast, TransLink have recently welcomed Belfast's first zero-emission hydrogen-fueled buses, a big step towards sustainable transport within Northern Ireland and the UK. The city has now three hydrogen fuel cell buses, hydrogen being a CO2 and methane-free fuel, which only emits water as an emission. The project was invested in and funded by the Department of Infrastructure and it seems in 2021 we are to expect 145 more of these zero emission buses in the TransLink fleet as £66 million has been allocated by the Infrastructure Department to the purchase. While many people have concerns about how the new fuel types are to be managed in terms of refuelling, Energia are working to install the first hydrogen fuel cell um, fueling station on the island of Ireland and we can hopefully see more of this soon as we move away from diesel and petrol towards more eco-friendly alternatives. Um, the company who built these buses is Wright Bus and is located locally in Ballymena. The company are expecting to roll out these double-deckers throughout Northern Ireland and also across the UK with orders already rolling in from London, Aberdeen and Birmingham. Boris Johnson plans to have 4,000 zero-emission buses on the roads and with orders um, in for thousands of these buses already, the local company will be busy over the coming years as we all make the move towards sustainable green zero-emission transport. 
And for the last fun piece of eco news, um, we have some good news on the famous Swedish furniture super brand IKEA, who have just purchased over 11,000 acres of forest in Georgia. The company has purchased acres of forests over the last few years in efforts to eliminate more carbon than it emits. Forests are not only the lungs of the earth, with the trees taking in carbon from the air and releasing oxygen in its place, but they also provide healthy habitats for much wildlife. In this case, one being the gopher tortoise, a tortoise being threatened by human activity in the area. This protection will um, prevent the forest being overworked and split into pieces, which of course helps with air quality, water quality, and of course, the all-important gopher tortoise. all we've got time for today thank you to all our guests for coming on and taking the time to chat to us thank you to staff roberts for editing this episode together for you and thank you for listening we'll see you next week